This morning we'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'd like to read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for what you have revealed here. Help us to understand your heart and how we can manifest that in our lives in every way. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can tell what the subject of today is it's right there in those last two verses and i want to get right to the the central question what is proper clothing what does that mean and i thought you know a picture is worth a thousand words so let's make this simple ladies i brought a picture of exactly how you should look when you come to church this felt about right it kind of gave me a bit of the marysville vibes i grew up in denim country so i was like great So, just look like that. Well, of course, unless you live maybe in the South and you've got a a sense of style. Or you live in Syria. Or unless, of course, maybe you live in Central Africa. Or Mexico. Or Norway. Or maybe Japan. Or Brazil. Or... China, and we could go on. Hmm. Maybe there isn't a picture that's going to exhaust the potential of this passage after all. Maybe it's not publishing a fashion guide. Our passage this morning does relate to how we, and in this case particularly to how women are to be adorned as they come to worship, but this passage, remember, is being read, it's being preached, it's being studied, it's being applied all around the globe. And it was being applied back in the 60s when things looked a little different than they do today. God expects that this passage will be immediately applicable in all these very distinct cultural and stylistic backgrounds. This is not a one-size-fits-all how you have to look when you come to church on Sunday. But it is a passage that gives us timeless and global principles that God does want us to understand. And particularly calling to the women this morning wants you to understand as you come adorned for worship on Sunday. 
And if you want the punchline at the beginning, here's what we're going to see this morning. Women should come to worship looking to make much of Christ and not much of themselves. That's really the bottom line. Women should come to worship looking to make much of Christ and not of themselves. They should be adorned, in other words, for the sake of the gospel. So let's dive into our two small verses this morning and see how Paul teaches this and how Paul also exemplifies this and what it's meant to look like. If you're taking notes this morning, our first point is this. Women should worship adorned properly. Properly. So let's begin by biting off a good chunk of verse 9 and start working with it. In verse 9, we see likewise. All right, we'll stop there. That's a good chunk to work with. Seriously, though, it is a good place to pause because Paul begins these verses and by extension the rest of this chapter by linking it to a point he's already made. And we can't understand what he's saying here if we don't understand the point he's already made. We don't want to miss it either because the point he has just made is centrally aligned with the reason he wrote this whole letter in the first place. Why did Paul write the book of 1 Timothy? Well, we can read that. In just another chapter, in chapter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God? What does the church do? The pillar and support of the truth. God has ordained that this, the church, is to be the pillar and the support of the gospel. And thus, it is very important how we conduct ourselves within the church so that our lives do, instead of do not, conform with that message that we are supporting And Paul's been helping Timothy work through a number of issues present in the church there in Ephesus already. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of bickering. People are majoring on the minors. They're forgetting the majors. There's saints just looking for a fight over things they don't understand and things that don't matter. And Paul's going to keep addressing those issues later on in this letter. But in chapter 2, he's focusing in on the way in which men and women both present themselves before God in the context of corporate worship. And he gets there by that interesting path we've been walking through over the last few weeks. So let's retrace our steps briefly so that we can better appreciate the likewise Paul begins our passage this morning with. Remember back in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, he began by calling for prayer. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. He calls the people to pray for everyone, but then gives particular emphasis to those who are in authority. What are we hoping will come about as a result of our prayers for those in authority? Well, he tells us, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. He says, pray that we would have the opportunity that there would be a context for us to live peaceably, quietly, with piety and godliness and why is god so keen to see his church able to live this way well verse three because this is good and acceptable in the sight of god our savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth 
God's desire is to see the gospel go out. His desire is to see people saved. And he links that with the desire that we should have to be able to live a quiet and tranquil life in godliness and dignity. How do those things intersect? Well, they intersect in the example of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 there. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul here reminds us that the author of salvation is exclusive. There is only one God. There is nowhere else to turn. And the mediator of salvation is exclusive. The only way that we can have a relationship with the one God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And his life was the perfect testimony to the truth, a testimony about himself. And Paul's life, then, he says, is to be a testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And he labored to live that out in faith and truth. God desires the holy lives of his saints to be the context in which the universal call of the gospel goes forth with its exclusive message of good news. Does that make sense? God's saying, I want the church to be a place where people live in such a way that it is the context for the effective proclamation of the gospel to all people in all places. And that's why Paul pivots on that point in verse 8 to say, therefore, and this is how that truth should look in Ephesus when the saints gather, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. What was going on in the church in Ephesus that was undermining the message of the gospel? Well, for one thing, it was a bunch of men refusing to be examples of humble prayer and unity. Instead, those who entered the church in Ephesus on a Sunday to find out what the message of the cross was all about would see men so busy fighting and arguing with each other that they neglected their spiritual leadership shamefully. And that's what Paul's been addressing in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, in chapter 2, verses 8, which we saw last week, indirectly in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and verses 12 through 16, all of chapter 4, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, and then again at the very end of the letter in chapter 6, verses 20 to 21. This was a big problem, and he spends most of the book hammering on it. And we'll be working through those instructions in the months ahead, but here in verse 2, Paul stops to address some of the problems in the church that were specific to the women. And it's not a new topic. It's turning to the other half of the audience. He's not saying, oh, hey, I've been teaching all these wonderful theological truths. Now let me take a minute to beat up on the ladies. No, he's saying, I'm trying to help the whole church learn how to look like the gospel. I've been talking to the men, and now I have a few words to share with the women. Or to put it briefly, likewise. Likewise. Well, likewise what? Look at verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. The I want here is in most of your translations in italics because it's being borrowed from the beginning of verse 8, right? Therefore, I want men to do this. Verse 9, likewise, and then there's, there's no verb in the Greek, so we stick it in there so that we can remember what Paul's saying. It's a parallel phrase. Likewise, I want, and that word want there is not just a suggestion, a preference, a casual thing. 
This word is translated throughout the rest of the New Testament as things like planned. It's translated as God's will. It's a word that is a sincere call to an obligation. Paul is saying, this ought to be done. He's not saying, hey, guys, if you feel like it, maybe try praying a little more and fighting a little less. He says, no, you must pray. You must stop fighting. Likewise, this is what must be true of the women. What is that? That they should adorn themselves. We're in an adorning kind of season, aren't we? How many of you have adorned your houses in preparation for Thanksgiving? Do we have any? Yeah, I know you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're adorning our homes for Thanksgiving in many cases. There's maybe some pumpkins and gourds lying around that you have no intention of eating. They're just going to sit there until they rot and you throw them away. Uh, some of you have got those little cornucopia things with that funky, like, dried Spanish rice cob things, you know, in there. That's what uh, my mom had out every year. And soon we'll be adorning for Christmas as well. And we're pulling out the stops. There will be lights. There will be decorations. In fact, just last night, uh, Amanda Jarvis here at the church sent her concept art for our Advent series out for, for review. We're getting ready to adorn things. And to adorn something means just what we think it means today, to decorate something, to make it appealing by arranging it and organizing it. That's what that word means, to decorate something, to make it appealing by arranging it and organizing it. And when it comes to Thanksgiving or when it comes to Christmas or when it comes to women in the church, adorning is a good thing. It's a good thing. Paul isn't writing this passage to tell women to start coming to church with a burlap sack over their heads. He wants them to be adorned and to be adorned as women. Nothing in this passage is meant to diminish in any way femininity in the women in the church in Ephesus or indeed in any other church ever since. But these verses do, however, shape how that adorned femininity is to be expressed in ways that are proper for the purposes of our gathering together as saints. If I came over to your house and you said, oh, I just finished decorating for Thanksgiving and I walked in and it was American flags everywhere, I'd say, whoops, you got, you got the wrong holiday. You're ready for the 4th of July. Paul is not saying, stop decorating. What he is saying is, understand the purpose. Understand what this is all for and make sure that the adornment matches its purpose. And that's why Paul goes on to say in the next phrase there that women should be adorned with proper clothing. Paul's having a little fun with words here. The word adorn we just saw is cosmane. And the word proper here is a word that sounds very like it, cosmio. And you may have noticed that not only do those words sound like each other, they also sound like a couple of English words that come from these. The word cosmetics and cosmos. And you might think it odd that cosmetics and the cosmos would have something to do with each other. I mean, what does lipstick have to do with planet Earth? But they actually both come from the same root. Both have an idea of something properly arranged and organized. That's what the root of both words means, something properly arranged and organized, put together. And whether it's a planet or whether it's the contents of a wardrobe, all should be adorned properly. Whether you're looking at the beauty of nature or the clothing of a Christian woman, there should be an immediate sense that what you see is in harmony with its intended purposes. 
And that's why if we go and we stand and we look out over a beautiful sunset, we go, wow, yes. And then if you come upon the aftermath of a hurricane, you say, oh, that's a shame. The word for clothing here, proper clothing, it's a broad term. It's not applying to a particular article of clothing, but generally to the entire look, if you will, of a person. I don't know what the word for your look is these days. It seems like it changes every five minutes. But the whole thing. Paul isn't addressing just dressing, but the overall presentation of a godly woman in the context of corporate worship. And what is most important in that appearance? Well, as you might expect, the most important part of this proper clothing is actually something that you can't observe directly. And that is the condition of the heart. Godly adornment puts the heart before the art. Godly adornment puts the heart before the art. Paul begins to describe what this proper clothing is to be like by identifying two attitudes of the heart. The first is modesty. Notice he says they are to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. What does this modestly mean? This word's an interesting word. It's in fact only used here in the Bible. But it was a word that was commonly used in the culture of the day. And it had a lot more to do with attitude than it did with just appearance. The word, as it was used in the culture, was closely associated with piety. You would, have, you would use it of somebody who conducted themselves in a way that demonstrated they lived in the fear of a god, whether that was the pagan deities or the true god. Another dictionary simply says this word is the opposite of treating something as common or ordinary. And so when you saw somebody that you would describe as modest, you saw somebody who had chosen to live in such a way that it pointed to something set apart, to something special. That's what it was about. And often that did come with an, with an attitude of piety, with a, with a maturity, with a sober-mindedness, but it has to do with that presentation of the heart. I think when we hear the word modesty today, we have maybe in some cases like flashbacks to awkward conversations and lectures involving rulers and fingertip lengths and and all that kind of stuff. And that's not always bad. And yes, our youth ministry, we have a dress code for our student activities, and that's important. But this word here is not trying to get you all to reach for your tape measure. It's trying to get us all to focus on the heart. Christian women, Paul says, should come to worship with an aura of piety about them. Sounds a little bit like what he just said to the men, doesn't it? When you walk into a church and you see a Christian man, you should see a man with an aura of piety about him, lifting holy hands in prayer, not fighting and defending his latest hobby horse. And now he turns to the women and says, similarly, when people see you, they should see something that points them to something greater. It goes hand in hand with that next word, discreetly. Similarly to modestly, this word discreetly means something that is reasonable, something that is prudent, something that is moderate. It is calculated. It is thoughtful. It is measured. It's on purpose. Well, instead of what? 
Paul, what are, you, what are you hearing about that's being so distracting in Ephesus that you are pausing to say, hey, ladies, let me talk about how you're dressed. What are you trying to avoid? What are you trying to guard against? Well, in the case of Ephesus, Paul gives us a taste of that there in the next phrase. Ladies, he says, wear proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. <laughs> and I think this is the part of the passage that traditionally has probably been the most abused and sets off the most alarm bells. And you might be like, but I like to braid my hair. <laughs> you know, do I have to take off my wedding ring? It's made out of gold. Or my, my dress is a designer dress, but I bought it at the thrift store. How costly is too costly? And I think as soon as we start down that road, we've completely missed the point of what Paul's trying to say. Paul here is giving an example of what in this culture amounted to getting all gussied up and showing off. That's what he's addressing. A city like Ephesus, like most cities today, was a place of vast socioeconomic disparities. And we'll see later in this letter that one of the dynamics in the church was the presence of both believing slaves and believing slave owners. And it was the custom of the time for women of means to demonstrate their social position, often at their husband's behest, because she was considered to be a walking billboard of his grandeur, to demonstrate that by how they dressed and how they did their hair. And I know you're thinking, weird, who does that? What kind of woman would ever show off by how she dresses or does her hair? But I understand these were different times dealing with different issues. And you'll have to stretch to imagine how that might find application to today. I'll show you a couple pictures uh, here on a slide. These are statues of the kind of women Paul's describing, the kind of hairdos of the time. Uh, you've got, I like, I like in particular, whatever that is going on. I mean... Can you imagine how long you'd spend with curlers trying to get that due? That is crazy. These are statues in a mosaic of upper-class hairdos from the time. Now, when we see statues today uh, in museums, we're like, man, they were a very reserved culture back then. It was all like white marble. And that's not what it looked like back when they made these. These would have been painted with wild, bright colors. And when they've been able to dig up statues that still have a little bit of pigment attached to them here and there, these were vibrant, bright statues that would have just went, wow, it would have been overwhelming to see as they would also have been covered and laced up with, with gold, like the golden hairnet you can see in the upper right there. It was meant to be a pretty overwhelming demonstration of opulence and beauty. And the question is, is that bad? <clears throat> is it bad to just go all out? And the answer is it depends on the context. Depends on the context. When it came to the context of the church, a woman should come adorned as a woman, but not as a social statement. She should come adorned as a woman, but not as a social statement. What exactly does that look like? Well, it varies wildly by culture and by context. What might be showing off in a gaudy fashion in our context might look very different if you were to go overseas to some other place. Or even within America, if you showed up to church dressed like you might dress in, in Manhattan in New York or something like that, versus you show up to a Midwestern church in a small farming community, you might look wildly out of place depending on if you swap two people from those congregations. 
There's a lot of context and culture that plays into what this looks like, but everywhere and everyone has its own particular rules for what counts as showing off, doesn't it? And this was how they did it in Ephesus. Paul is challenging the women of Ephesus to check their hearts before they gather on Sunday. Is it possible that sitting two seats down from a woman whose head looked like Alibaba's cave of wonders was the hopelessly overshadowed slave girl who had spent her whole morning braiding and adorning her mistress's head? What did that say about the church to those who came in? How did that reflect on the gospel? What did that sermon made out of hair preach about the real meaning of communion as it was passed around? Here's the bottom line. A godly woman comes to worship having adorned herself intentionally. She has considered how she appears, not in reference to the expectations of others, but for the purpose of appropriately communicating truth to others. She isn't dressed to impress. She's dressed to express what she believes. We don't see a lot of gold embroidery in hairdos today, but we do see how this same principle applies. It's not hard, is it, ladies, to tell if a guy's showing off, right? I know we guys think we're really subtle. I've never seen this in our youth ministry, for example. But it's not hard to tell when a young guy's showing off. It's also not hard, ladies, to tell when a woman is showing off. Now, I'm still talking to you, ladies, because, yes, historically, men are completely clueless what women are doing and why. But you guys know. You guys know when you're posturing. You guys know when you're comparing. You guys know when you're trying to one-up each other. The goal of how we come together on Sundays is not to make statements about our own glory. The target of Sunday attire is not spectacle, it's service. And that's why Paul goes on now in verse 10 to say, godly adornment puts service before status. Godly adornment puts service before status. Look at verse 10. But rather, by means of good works. Don't be coming to church with your focus on the display, the spectacle, the the fancy braided hair with all the gold woven in, the expensive dresses and and the pearls and all of that, but, but rather come to church with your adornment centered on good works. In contrast to gaudy, showy appearance, the adornment of a godly woman gathered for worship with the people of God is service-oriented. And it's a little unclear actually here if this verse is saying that the woman is adorned with good works or if she's adorned for the purpose of good works, but it makes a little practical difference. Good works sparkle with gospel glory just as surely as woven gold sparkles with earthly glory. And this is what a broken world needs to experience when they come into contact with the people of God. And this is what they are longing for, to see. Dear sisters, what a powerful opportunity you have here to adorn not only yourselves, but to adorn the gospel itself. I want to make a few observations here before we get to our last point in the final words of verse 10. You may be wondering, why is Paul focusing just on the appearance of women and not of men? Why is he calling them out in this way? 
as Paul moves from the men to the women, he's highlighting how we ought to live in the areas that relate to our unique glory as men and women. There is a special sort of glory in the feminine that provides for a particularly powerful embodiment or embodied expression of truth that just isn't the same for men. It's just the way it is. Poets have not spent the millennia getting hung up on the beauty of men. There's a unique glory to the feminine. Plus, the men were busy fighting, not overbraiding their hair. Paul and God was more worried about discussing what was actually going on in Ephesus than about keeping their you know, equity street cred in the culture. Scripture talks to us about where we're at. And maybe when we gather today, the ways in which we express our fallenness have, have shifted slightly from the, the center of what he's talking about here in terms of cultural expression. But it is always going to be true that there will be a unique kind of opportunity and a unique kind of temptation for women when it comes to their adornment because of the uniqueness of their glory. Secondly, I want to point out that this passage is focusing on corporate worship. There are times to crank the feminine wow factor all the way to 11. There is a place for that. Just read Song of Solomon. You'll see a celebration of the time and the place for a truly intoxicating display of beauty and charm. Singling out even hairdos that are fancy, clothing that's expensive, and jewelry. There's a time and a place to just crank it up and say, wow. But what is appropriate on Sunday morning is different than what might be appropriate on a wedding day or at an anniversary dinner or on a hiking trip out into the bush. Different adornments for different purposes. Each context has its purpose and the goal is to be intentional about each. And Paul's saying, when you come together as the people of God, what are we communicating here by what we do and how we look? And so examine ourselves. There, there's no plans to set up the, the Women's Council on VBC Sunday Dress Code, in case you were worried. That's not happening. Thank heavens. This isn't meant to establish some kind of legalistic code but it's calling us all to a heart of worship that adorns itself outwardly for the sake of the gospel. So yeah, if you have been you know, conspicuously showing off your $2,000 Gucci clutch, come on, you probably stop. Or if you've bought into the lie, as so many do in our culture, that, that overtly displaying your sexuality is how you de- demonstrate your empowerment and your value. It's time to reevaluate. Or if, on the other hand, you're ashamed of your femininity and hide it, that's not what this passage is calling for. We are in a culture that was, is not only dealing with the exaggeration of gender and sexuality in sinful ways, we're also in a culture that's just in flat-out rebellion against gender expression and sexuality. So what does it mean for you, godly woman, as you consider how am I going to adorn myself piously, intentionally, for the purpose of demonstrating the love of God and service in a powerfully feminine way? 
well, I'm not going to tell you. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that looks like for you. Because that's your act of worship. That's your service to God. That's your opportunity to look around and say, in the culture and place that I'm at, and coming to the church for the context of worship and service, this is how I can put the feminine on display in a way that makes much of the gospel. And if we master this, it will not end up with everyone showing up to Sunday wearing whatever's on sale at Costco this week. We won't all look the same. We won't all act the same. If we all apply this passage as fully as we can, there will still be wildly diverse presentations of personalities and styles, but all communicating the same appropriate message about the gospel. And God loves that. God loves the fact that our little church service probably looks ridiculous to a church gathering in Cambodia this morning. What are they doing? Are they glued to their chairs? Does nobody know how to say amen? And vice versa, if we watch them, we'd be like, man, what did they have in their cereal this morning? They are hyper. And God can look on both and not want either of us to look more like the other because we can both be fully honoring the Lord, fully applying these principles and the amazing, diverse, and beautiful spectrum of what God has created throughout the world to give himself glory. Because he's a creative God. He's not boring. Unlike most men, he knows the names of all the colors. And so I want to encourage us, let's make this a topic of conversation in our church. But a gracious one. It's good that we would talk to one another and say, how can we strategically think through these things? What can this look like? What is the potential? It's good to figure out how to live these truths out. Our fire teams, one of the big points that they have, or one of the big goals out of that is to challenge our guys to think intentionally about how they are living out their masculinity. But if we begin to have these conversations and as these topics, even this week in our life groups begin to swirl around, please guard yourselves against making assumptions or becoming judgmental towards others. The purpose of this passage is not to establish the glare brigade in the foyer. What are you doing dressed like that? That's not the goal. The purpose of these passages is to call all of us to look at our heart and to consider how we may most honor God in how we come to worship. Whether you're as a man, as we saw last week, whether you're as a woman, as we saw this week. One of the neatest examples I think I've seen of this lived out powerfully was as a young man, I had the chance to travel to the Ukraine as a part of some short-term mission trips and spend some time in some Ukrainian churches. And I'll tell you what, I saw some powerful service-oriented femininity on display in these churches. And I'll never forget it. These were modest servants. They weren't flashy and showing off. They couldn't if they tried. They were too poor. But it wasn't like our culture wants us to imagine it is with a bunch of shuffling downcast eyes, probably wearing red dresses, going all handmaid's tail. No. 
this was this was back when the older women in the church were those whose husbands had all died in war and so they had just come from laying brick all week because there were no men in the culture these are the kind of women like i saw one who who beat a teenage boy with her cane because he didn't immediately give her his seat when she got on the bus <laughs> like these are not weak women they were strong women they were joyful women Everywhere they, go, they went and whatever they were doing, there was singing that went with them, beaming smiles. When they prayed in church, it was with such passion. And boy, could they cook as well. And they filled that church hall with delicious smells and then hosted the whole church to a feast afterwards. It was a tidal wave of feminine gospel truth. And guess what? It was the sermon I got the most out of that day. Because there was three guys that stood up because they did three sermons in a row. So you're lucky. They had three guys that stood up and preached in Ukrainian. And guess how particularly edifying that was for someone who doesn't understand Ukrainian. But I understood what the gospel looks like by how the women in that church looked and acted. It was powerful. They had a purpose to their conduct and to their opinion as all godly women should. And that's where we get to our conclusion this morning. Women should worship adorned purposefully. Paul closes by saying, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. It's only proper, he says, and this is actually a different word proper than the one we saw in the previous verse. This word here means fitting, suitable. It's only right. It only makes sense for women to look this way. Why? Because you can't separate a claim to the gospel from a claim to godliness. When we turn to Christ by faith, we declare a new life has begun that is marked by following him. As we get ready for our closing song here in just a moment, I think we need to be reminded of that. When we chose to follow Jesus Christ, we not only laid hold of a secure hope for an eternity in heaven, but we also declared that we will follow Jesus Christ. And that is a process of being transformed. Our journey in Christ, yes, is a spiritual one, but it is not only a spiritual one. You cannot live your Christian life only in your heart because you're not just a heart being. You're a body soul which means that what you believe and how you worship cannot not be both spiritual and physical. And so Paul says, when I look at your church, I can tell not just where your fashion's broken, not just where your prayer time's broken, I can tell where your theology's broken. I can see what's wrong with your heart because it's coming out in how you men and women are demonstrating yourselves on Sunday. And so whether it's our work, whether it's our play, whether it's our prayer, whether it's even our appearance, everything matters. And so as we close this morning, let him who took our sins now in every way take our whole lives inside and out and put his glory on display. Amen? Amen.